For some time now, perhaps due to my own love of tech and travel, I've been on the lookout for potential guests who work in tech and travel, or at least work in a country other than their native one. We've had on a few such guests in the past who have moved abroad to work for a company, but today's guest, Monica Lent, is, I believe, the first guest to build travel into the very fabric of their work in tech. On top of the travel aspects of her life, she also brings a unique education background in that she majored in the classics and minored in computer science at the University of Arizona. Along her journey in tech, she's worked in cloud services, natural language processing, e-learning, and fintech, holding down roles like developer, front-end engineer, research associate, and tech lead. These days, she's the founder of her own startup, Affiliate, and a prolific blogger on both travel and tech, primarily for two content sites she started, Not a Nomad and Blogging for Devs, which of course we'll link up in the show notes. Be sure to stay tuned as we catch up with Monica Lent and hear how this classics major churn developer has created an independent international life for herself. You're listening to the Developmentor Podcast. Hosted by Grant Ingersoll. We have one goal on the show, to help you build a successful career in tech, no matter where you're from or where you're going. We do this by showcasing interesting people working across a variety of roles in tech and deep dive into their why. If you want to learn more, please visit our website at developmentor.com or follow us on Twitter at developmentor. Hey, Monica. Thanks for joining me. Hey, Grant. Thanks so much for having me on. Now, and I believe you're in Berlin, That's right? Right. I'm located in Berlin, and I've been here for a couple of years now. And I love Berlin. We've had a few other Berlin guests on before, I guess. Uh, one of my favorite things about Berlin is just the the neighborhoods, the neighborhood bars, walking around, having a, a drink with friends in the evening. Uh, I'm curious, what is, what is some of your favorite parts of Berlin? I think... Probably the best thing about Berlin is the summer because Berlin is surprisingly far north. It's actually about as far north as some parts of Canada. So you get these really long uh, summer nights. And this is something that I never really experienced growing up. So it's so cool to just really enjoy that sunshine all the way until like 10 o'clock at night. Yeah, I can remember at least uh, uh, a few nights out where it's you know it's still light out till ten eleven p.m. and then and then the sun comes up at like five a.m. too. So uh, it makes for a lot a lot of activity in the summer months because you can just enjoy the the full day, as they say, right? Yeah, absolutely. Now in in your in your bio, and I'd love to just jump in and kick off here, Monica, because I think in your bio, you know, you mentioned you started coding when you were ten, and I'm curious, you know, what inspired you to to make that start, and how did that evolve uh, through your teenage and college years? Yeah, so I started coding at a super young age. I actually recently went into into web archive to kind of try and pinpoint when it began, um, and I found evidence of JavaScript as early as as 1998. So I was even eight years old at the time. Um, And I believe this was when I got my first domain name, which was like a birthday present. Uh, So I guess that's not such a typical birthday present for an eight-year-old, but that's what I wanted. And um, the main reason that I kind of got into tech and programming is because my dad was an engineer. So we always had access to computers. We had technical books at home. And I was really into, you know, the kind of things that people would be into at that age, like Neopets and pixel art and and forums and things like that. And so I just kind of wanted to create some of that for myself. So I built some of my own forums and extensions, learned how to make websites with PHP and MySQL. And it was really just kind of seeing all that cool stuff online and then wanting to create my own version of it. Oh, that's fantastic. I love that domain name for your birthday. Now I know when my son was born, I bought his domain name right on on day one, just so he would have it. But I'm curious, what was the domain name? Oh my gosh, I don't know. Should I say it? Because then it's going to be a, you know, people can go into web archive and find it. It was, okay, I'll tell you. It was a virtual strawberryland.net. So 
I wanted to make my oh, own land, right? Yeah, I wanted to make my own land, you know, with like pixel art. And I had to learn PHP so that people could like log in and send messages to their neighbors and things like that. So, yeah, I mean, it's exactly the kind of domain name you'd expect a small child to purchase. Ah, <laughs> uh, that's fantastic. And now, and I'm. We've had several guests on before who kind of learned to code via the, the the classic form of you know view source. Is that how you also learned to code, or because your dad was an engineer, was it more let's say curated? Oh, so I definitely started with view source. So it was looking at people's really cool like Neopets profiles where they had all this custom CSS, and then viewing the source and seeing what I could copy and paste into my own profile. And this was kind of like the segue into starting to learn more about actually building applications, um, building forum extensions and things like that. And so with those kind of things, of course, you can't really view the source. But when it came to like just using code to make something look different on a computer, then view source was absolutely like the gateway. Yeah, there's definitely something lost these days by all the minification and <laughs> optimization. Uh, well, so I'm curious, you know, you, ha you have this love of coding, but, you know, like a few other guests, I think actually Naomi Cedar on episode 80 comes to mind. You, you pursued the classics. What was behind wanting to major in classics and minor in computer science? So I never really started thinking that I was going to study computer science at all. I kind of saw coding and making websites as a hobby, but I never really aspired to, you know, be in an office and sit at a computer or something like that. So for my like high school mind, something like classics where you get to read and like think about philosophy and like learn languages, it was like the ultimate like intellectual pursuit. So that's kind of what I, what I thought I was going to do in college. Um, but I was kind of fortunate enough that I actually had a job at a bookstore. And when this job ended, I had to look for something else. So it was like a seasonal thing. And I ended up getting a job working as a student webmaster. And I was surrounded by people who were studying computer science. And this kind of like sparked my interest that I wanted to go deeper than what I had just kind of taught myself casually through books growing up, building my own projects. And so being in that environment where I got to be with people who were, you know, professional software developers quite early, you know, in my career, I was 19 years old. This is what made me more interested in like going deeper into software and kind of adding that onto my skill set. No, I love that one. Well, so you mentioned in there that you didn't aspire to sit in an office and write code. Well, I don't know if you wrote, said write code, but you said you didn't aspire to, to sit in an office. What did you aspire to as, you know, 19-year-old Monica in terms of your career? I, I would say I didn't really have an idea of my career very much at that point. I wanted to go, you know, study. I studied Latin and Asian Greek. And I kind of thought that I was going to eventually go on to grad school after that. Uh, of course, law school is always an option when you study classics. Um, you yeah, know, there are sure. <laughs> there are a couple of just like common paths where like with, when your parents ask you, well, Monica, what are you going to do with a with a, a degree in Latin? And you just say, oh, don't worry, dad, I can become a lawyer. You know, <laughs> that's like the common response. <laughs> um, but of course, it didn't work out that way. Um, but yeah, I, I kind of thought I would go to grad school, but because of the fact that I took graduate level classes while I was still an undergrad, it kind of gave me a taste of what that would be like. And I was just like, I was not interested. It was even more work, even more exhausting. Um, and I just kind of needed a break after really pushing myself to be prepared for grad school, such that like in a somewhat ironic way, it made me not want to go to grad school at all. <laughs> Oh, interesting. Yeah, no, I can see that. I mean, you know, and it's not for everybody and it certainly isn't a requirement these days. So, so if I recall then looking on your profile, you went to work for a company, I believe it was at iPlant Collaborative that exactly. you had been interning with. How were you then thinking about your career as you graduated university? Was it like, hey, I'm going to go right into computer science or was this just a way station, if you will? 
So I actually worked at iPlant for, I think, three and a half years or so. So I started as student developer. And then um, after I graduated, they offered me a full-time role. And because I didn't want to go into, you know, bring, being a grad student, I didn't really want to go, go through that. Then I decided to keep that job. And I didn't necessarily have a particular plan. It was more like possibly the best fallback plan that anyone could have, right? Working in a software development job. That's that's a pretty luxurious position to be in. So For what sure. I did is I, I used that to kind of start planning how I would get the next job because I wanted to leave Tucson, Arizona. If you, I don't know if you, uh, Grant, if you've ever been to Tucson, but it is very hot. And every <laughs> summer, every summer I told myself, this is the last summer I'm going to put myself through this. So I was actually planning an exit to San Francisco to go like be where all the tech people are and work at some cool startup. But what happened was that I was actually building, you know, some, some code to kind of build up a profile, build up some open source code that people could look at as I applied for jobs. And in the process of doing that, I got in touch with someone who then was part of the reason why I had an opportunity to move to Germany. So it was never really a plan that's, that I would, you know, stay at iPlan forever or even that I would stay, stay in Tucson or in that job. But in the process of trying to get to SF, I ended up finding a way to Europe. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's all in the same direction, right? I guess. <laughs> oh, yeah, and well, you know, and I, I have been to Tucson, and uh, as they say, it's a dry heat, right? But exactly. when it's 120, it doesn't matter how dry it is. Oh, my God. I mean, I remember feeling, you know, it's like you step into an oven, and I, I couldn't help but think to myself, like, I'm too young to shorten my life expectancy like this, you know? <laughs> so yeah. it was it was time. And I remember moving to Germany and just loving the clouds so much. I was like, wow, this, this overcast day is so beautiful. <laughs> um, and people yeah. thought it was strange, but when you're used to living somewhere like that, you know... Yeah, for sure. Well, and so this is obviously a pretty huge inflection point, this decision to move, you know, and I'm curious, what are some things you did to prepare for that? Maybe double click down on, you know, the, hey, I started to put together a profile and things like that. What are some concrete things that you did to prepare for such a big move? So I started by just trying to code some some projects. I was building something with Latin. I think it was like a vocabulary tool. I just wanted to create something open source that was an up-to-date reflection of my knowledge and skills at that point. And what I did is actually was kind of like looking at the network requests of a really popular tool that's used in Latin and ancient Greek, which is called Perseus. And it's a tool where you can like read classical texts and you can click on the words and it gives you a ton of grammatical information about that word. And I wanted to use their API. And I was like, surely there must be an API under here that I can use somewhere. But it ended up just be, like being an API that returned to HTML that got inserted into the DOM. Um, so what happened is mm. I, I emailed them and I asked them, do you have an API? Where is this data coming from? Can I have it? You know, is there some way I can use this? I'm trying to build an app. And the woman who replied to me was actually the lead developer on the project. And she later remembered me, you know, some months down the road. And that was how I got kind of introduced to this project that was getting started. And that was in Leipzig, Germany. So I was preparing myself to ideally move to the next stage of my career, but I kind of got to short circuit it simply by the fact that, well, there aren't a lot of people who know Latin and Greek and are web developers or even who know how to code. So the fact that this project was about Latin and Greek doing NLP, you know, creating an e-learning platform. There were just so few people in the world who would have been, you know, quote unquote, qualified for this, that, you know, it was almost like a, a no brainer that as long as I was kind of like a normal person and easy to work with that, you know, it would have been a really great fit. So I didn't necessarily have to do a ton of work. I don't even think I had a technical interview for this position, if I recall correctly. Um, it was more just like a really casual casual exchange. And that's how I ended up in my, my second role in academia. 
Oh, wow. So that's, that's just, there's so many interesting things in there. But this is also then you're, you're moving to Leipzig, right? Or Leipzig. Exactly. Uh, and this is the NLP piece on your curve. And so that, that's an interesting thing because now all of a sudden these two worlds of yours are coming together. They're, they're colliding, if you will, right? Absolutely. It was the thing that my parents never thought would happen, that I would get a job from being a Latin major. <laughs> so it was kind of like a great chance for me to see, you know, see how employable I am. <laughs> and of course, you know, their response was, yes, but it's also because you can code. So yeah, yeah it was a, a bit of a balance of both worlds. Well, and, you know, and usually when I have guests on who have majored in things other than computer science, I like to ask the question, you know, how has your major actually informed and helped you in computer science or in engineering? And for you, it's literally it helped you get a job. But I'm curious, you know, broadening that out for me a little bit. How has the classics, you know, woven into your career over the years? It's a little hard to answer, I have to say, because one of the most common things people people think when you've studied languages is, oh, isn't computer science, you know, programming languages, is there some kind of connection between being good at programming, being good at natural languages and so forth? And it's, it's honestly a bit hard for me to say what kind of connection I would make between the two. I've almost never met somebody who has kind of like taken the same path. So to be honest, I'm not sure I can say that they have had a really direct connection, except that I'm always the person who, you know, whenever there's a new word coming up, I always know the etymology of it. So I'm, I'm one of those people, uh, like the walking dictionary. And that's, I mean, that's fun, I guess. But I can't, I can't say that it has really changed the way I do. I code because honestly, I've been coding for such a young age, since such a young age, that I barely remember what it, what it's like to not know how to code. So those things are so interconnected that I can't really isolate it. I should probably be asking the reverse question, which is how has uh, computer science informed your study of the classics? But uh, yeah, uh, I think we'll move. I think we'll move on. I'm, I'm curious, then, you know, share with our listeners what that experience was like. Maybe you know the first three months, the that process of getting to Germany, you know, really settling in, uh, you know, getting used to working in another country. Well, this, this was quite an experience, not just because I was moving to Germany, but because I was moving somewhere like Leipzig. At the time, Leipzig was even more, let's say, isolated in some ways. So now that I live in Berlin, it's very multicultural. It's easy to do things in English, whereas the exact opposite was true in Leipzig. So, for example, if I had to go to the dentist, I had to figure out how to do it in German despite the fact that I had been learning the language for, let's say, two months at that point. So I needed a lot of help and support to be able to go through the paperwork. And there was definitely a degree of culture shock, which you wouldn't think is so intense going somewhere like Germany. You know, it's Western Europe. How different can it really be? But it was it was pretty wild, I have to say. I mean, you can't talk to people like, you know, being an American, you're probably used to that when you when you go get a cup of coffee, you know, you can have some kind of casual banter with this person, you know, make a joke. It's very comfortable. And the exact opposite is true moving somewhere where nobody speaks English and you don't even speak enough German to like make a full sentence. So this adjustment process was definitely more more intense and I would say more difficult than I expected. But I was lucky that I worked with enough colleagues who came from all over the world. There were other Americans. So at least I had people to share the experience with. But yeah, getting started in a new in a new country, things work differently. And all the paperwork is in a foreign language. So you mm. just kind of get used to somehow depending on people around you. And I think that's also kind of what motivated me to really, you know, invest the energy in learning German properly because I didn't like having that, you know, feeling of dependency just to read my mail or, you know, be able to go visit a flat that I wanted to rent. Um, so it was definitely a whole process of learning both to do things on my own and uh, to be able to depend on other people when that just wasn't possible. Yeah, I can only imagine. So did you do like a German immersion course or how did you, you know, maybe one or two tips on learning a language? 
Well, I, I kind of didn't have to do German immersion because no one spoke English in Leipzig. So um, that's kind of like the funny thing is when people move to Berlin, so many people never learn German just because it's so easy to get by in English. So I'm actually really grateful that even though it was tough doing it in Leipzig, my German ended up a lot better because of it. So I pretty much taught myself by by watching Harry Potter movies with German subtitles. <laughs> this helped a lot with, with uh, listening comprehension. And then I read the books in German. And it was funny because it was really like the first proper spoken language that I became conversational in, despite studying uh, French and Japanese in university. It's just like a totally different experience when you're when you're speaking in the real world. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I suppose you're really good at casting spells in German now too, <laughs> right? You you learn really funny vocabulary when you start with Harry Potter. I had people I had people telling me like, "Yes, what you have said is grammatically correct, but I would never say that because it's too literary." So so that's uh, kind of like <laughs> yeah, that's kind of what happens when you learn a foreign language you have to speak but from a book, but that's how we did it in Latin, so it was like for me the most natural thing is of course I'm going to learn this language by reading literature. Right. <laughs> so that's interesting. I guess I hadn't thought about it that way, but that makes, of course, it makes total sense. Well, so then transitioning, I think then you, uh, you, you left the university there and you went to work for a startup. I believe Sum Up was, was it. And this is where kind of your, you, you did some ladder climbing on the career ladder, if you will. I think senior engineer, you were a lead. I think you talked about doing some light management or management work. I'm curious, you know, sum up your time at sum up. What are some of the key skills and lessons you learned as being part of what I believe is was also a pretty high growth startup? Absolutely. So when I joined sum up, it was uh, a company of about 80 people. And by the time I left, it was more than 1500. So oh, wow. there were years where we were doubling the size of the company every year. So it went from somewhere where, you know, you kind of know, you could get to know everybody at the Christmas party to, you know, I'm getting a coffee during the day. I see someone standing next to me and I'm like, I've never seen you before and I will probably never see you again. You know, this is, it's just a completely, it's completely wild to kind of be on that, uh, working at a company with that kind of a growth trajectory. So when I came in, I was one of, I think, two people doing front-end development. The other guy was mostly a designer. So he was kind of just doing a little bit of AngularJS. And I was there to do most of the front-end coding. And yeah, nowadays they have something like 40 front-end developers. So when I came in, I was hired as a senior developer. And I've, I've written about this in a blog post, but it was kind of funny because at that point, I only had three and a half years of experience. But they hired me as a senior, and this obviously made me think that I knew a lot at that point, um, which years later I realized was I had a lot of gaps in my knowledge then. Um, but I worked over the next five years at that company to kind of fill those out, and I learned really a lot. Some of the, the main things were you know, going from an individual contributor to becoming a technical lead and manager. So the big thing that I really attribute to my time at SumUp is learning about the interplay between technical, um, like what you're delivering from a software standpoint and thinking about this also from a business perspective. So I think, you know, a lot of developers, it's just really common that you're in your own world about the code, you know, you want to have the absolute highest quality, and this is super important. But at the same time, there's also that other aspect of realizing that, you know, if nobody's using this or we get it out too late, so it's not competitive anymore, or maybe we have uh, clients that our sales team has agreed with that needs this and we're delaying it for you know, unnecessary reasons, technical reasons or whatever it is, that these things are much more interlinked than you would think about as a developer in most situations. So you kind of have to just expand your, your thinking instead of just like, this is my code and this is the thing I'm building to, you know, how does what I'm doing actually affect the entire company? And then from there, what can I do to make a bigger impact? 
And I think that's probably the thing that I really like the most about working at SumUp is they gave me a lot of freedom to to kind of have the impact that I wanted to have and to shape the work that I was doing day to day. And I think there's there's not a lot of places where you just get, you know, relatively free reign to make improvements as you see fit. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the true powers of working at a startup, especially one that's growing, is there's just so much need. And so you just jump in and be useful, and it can be a lot of fun. It can also be pretty stressful. I think you mentioned in there, too, you were starting to manage people. Was this something that you had set out to do? Did you want to be a manager? Was this the the, the classic software engineering turned reluctant manager? Uh, how did you approach the management side of your time there? Yeah, it's it's funny because I wouldn't say I ever necessarily aspired to be a manager, but because we worked in a distributed setup, it was always kind of more optimal if you could have a local, a local manager. And so one day my boss just told me, I think you should manage your two coworkers. And I was like, okay, like, you know, it it wasn't really something (laughs) that I, you know, aspired to or asked about or anything like that. And as I said, I wasn't even super experienced when I took on this role. It was just that I was more experienced than the two people sitting next to me. So that was kind of a little bit how I fumbled into, into management. And then from there, you know, it was very much like, sink or swim, you know, you have to learn what you're doing every day. You know, I could tell them, I don't necessarily know what I'm doing, but I'm doing my best. And over the years, you know, this evolved from, you know, just being responsible for, for raises and assessments to also doing a lot of hiring. I have done, I don't know, hundreds of interviews easily. I don't know. It's, it's not quantifiable anymore. And being <laughs> responsible for building the team. And then eventually I also ended up building an international team. So learning how to hire in other locations remotely. So it kind of went from being like the most technical person. And that was my responsibility to actually being a full-time manager by the time I left. And what are some tips, you know, for our listeners there that really helped you succeed in doing that? How did you think about building your team? How did you think about, you know, the culture of the team? So what I tried to do is I tried to be the manager that I would want for myself. So because I had a remote manager for most of my time at SumUp, I didn't necessarily have someone that I could really easily ask for advice all the time. And my manager was not necessarily someone who knew everything that I was doing every day. So I had to manage myself quite a bit. And I really wanted to, you know, from all of my experiences, I've had, I've had, I don't know, five or six bosses now in my, in my career. I tried to pick the things from the ones that I really liked. And also keep in mind the things that didn't go so well and just, you know, empathize with people, try to be the type of manager that I would want. And I think if I were to like give uh, a piece of advice to somebody who either wants to be a manager or who is just kind of getting started on that path, probably the number one thing I would do is find other managers in the company and ask them for advice. So one of the things that even though I had a, a relatively distant boss who was very busy and also just had a lot of responsibilities, I could kind of find other peers throughout the organization who I could ask questions of. So they might not even be technical managers or you know maybe it's someone who's managing people in hardware instead of software but they still had very relevant management experience that I could learn from. And most importantly, you know, they were in the same culture, right? So SumUp's culture was very much about being proactive, seeing what gaps need to be handled, taking it on yourself, you know, and I'm the kind of person that thrives in that kind of environment. So getting advice from managers who were used to operating in that environment was somehow more helpful than talking to managers who, Maybe we're in more hierarchical settings where, you know, everything was super top down. I never wanted to be the kind of manager that had to micromanage or tell people what to do. You know, I always wanted to give them that, that freedom as much as possible to do what they think is right. And, um, yeah, I think those were like the main things that I did blending together information from my peers and then also thinking about what what would work best for me and the kind of manager I always wanted. 
Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think the modeling good managers can can definitely lead to some some good insights as a manager. So, thank you so much for sharing that. Now, I'm I'm not entirely certain about the timing here, but somewhere in the midst of all this, you started blogging. I think first on travel and then on tech, you've started this blogging for devs. You've got uh, not a nomad. You know, you've grown this to, I believe, tens of thousands of readers and millions of page views. What's the story behind Monica, the blogger? Well, I never really planned to, let's say, blog for money or even be a very successful blogger. Um, I started this travel blog primarily just to document my time living in Europe. As you can imagine, an American moves to Europe. She's got a lot of ideas about what it's going to be like. You know, like people with fancy accents everywhere. You know, I'm going to be so cultured and eat all of this exotic food and whatever. And I wanted to document that in a blog. And I also, in the time, learned more about photography and it kind of became like a little side project for me. And slowly, what kind of happened over time is that Google became more interested in my content. So I started to get more and more visitors, and it was around the time when I had like 30,000 monthly visits that I realized, okay, this is something that I I could expand on this a bit. And I joined some Facebook groups where there were people who were blogging professionally. So they were really focused on earning money from their blogs. So during those two years is when I really focused and I learned about SEO, I learned about affiliate marketing, and I kind of like grew this blog as like a side hustle to something between three to five grand a month is how much it was like kind of earning, which was shocking. Wow. It was shocking to me, to be honest. And also to some of my, my colleagues, they were like, wow, why should I be a developer if I can just, you know, take photos and like write travel itineraries, <laughs> you know, sounds relaxing, right? And then you can go like be on a beach, you know, that's the, that's the image that's projected of yeah. the blogger lifestyle. And Wait, you're saying it's not? <laughs> well, I it's it's up and down, right? Because when you're when you're in this kind of business model, you know, you don't have recurring customers uh, necessarily. You you get a lot of traffic from Google, and if you have been doing this for any amount of time, you know that. Google can wake up in the morning and hate your website. You know, mm-hmm. these are the feared Google core updates, which, you know, whenever they roll out several times a year, it's like everyone goes scrambling to try and figure out what's changed in the algorithm, you know, and if you rely on that for money, that means you might be making 50% of what you were the day before. So yeah. you don't really have a ton of agency in that sense. So I can talk about this for a long time, but in, in short, um, I, learned, I learned about blogging and SEO and building Blogging for Devs, which I launched recently as, as an email course, was really a way for me to take what I learned about content and SEO and even monetized websites and then thinking okay, what are the main lessons that I can apply from that experience to blogging as a developer? Because I have Mm -hmm. had a couple of blog posts that did really well on my technical blog and they really opened up a lot of opportunities for me. But the reason they work so well is because I was thoughtful about how I did them. You know, I came up with a really interesting title. I structured the article so it would be easy for people to skim and get the highlights. You know, it was very intentional how I did it using some of the skills I learned as a blogger. And my thinking was, you know, if I can kind of teach developers how to do this in a way that is strategic and kind of doesn't feel like marketing because so much about blogging is just like a subset of, of content marketing and internet marketing and online marketing. You know, how can I repurpose that in a way that's both palatable and actionable for them so they can kind of get the benefits of what you would see writing from like a marketing standpoint, but apply that to your career because it's almost like the best kind of inbound marketing that you can have, right? Like you have people read your article, they think it's amazing, and then they reach out to you for opportunities, whether it's, you know, coming on a podcast or, you know, a job interview or things like that. And, you know, a lot of developers, you know, they wait until they have to apply to a job. And I think blogging is a super efficient way for developers to take a more proactive approach to how they are perceived professionally. 
Yeah, for sure. I know uh, blogging for me landed my first book deal. Oh, wow. Uh, it, op- it opened up all kinds of opportunities. And, you know, I mean, because essentially what you're demonstrating as a developer is that, A, you know how to code, and B, you know how to communicate. And those are the two fundamental skills. Real quick, you know, what are one or two actionable things your our listeners might learn by signing up for the course? So I think there are there are a couple of main things. The first thing is understanding the different intent that people have when they are discovering content or blog posts on different platforms. So for example, if I'm on Twitter and I see a blog post that's like a tutorial about, you know, how to do authentication with Firebase. The reality is that I'm probably on Twitter because I'm procrastinating my actual work, right? I'm not looking to learn something as much as I am looking for entertainment or something that will distract me. And I think a lot of developers get confused because they're like, well, I, I wrote this, you know, this tutorial, I put it on Twitter and nobody cares about it. And what I explain is that Twitter is not necessarily going to be the best platform for informational content. So if you want to write technical tutorials, it'll be a better investment of your time to optimize those for SEO so that, you know, in the future, maybe when you're Googling your problem, you know, you come across your own blog post. You just kind of have to put yourself in the mindset of whoever is actually going to be discovering your content. So I think this this understanding of the intent of the reader is something that a lot of developers miss out on. Then the other thing that I think is really important and is also covered a bit there is that you have to write content for the kind of people that you want to attract. So you have people who write a lot of beginner content, but that also just means that you will have a lot of people who subscribe to your mailing list or follow you on Twitter who are also beginners, which is totally fine. I think the question that people just don't ask very often is, okay, strategically, what are the kind of people that... I want to be discovering my work. For example, if I write something about being a manager or my journey from being from going from junior to senior, this is going to attract the attention from people who are in leadership, you know, people who might want to hire me. That's a totally different kind of audience than let's say if I were to write, you know, a tutorial about using React. So again, it's not just about where you put it, but also the type of people that you will kind of like draw into your circle by writing about different topics. So, you know, if you want to get freelancing clients or you want to get, uh, you know, hired as a contractor at a company, maybe it's better to write content that will do better on LinkedIn instead of, uh, you know, writing tutorials for Google because that's where those people are. So, they kind of both tie together, but it's really, I think, about understanding what's my goal? Why am I writing this content? Is it just to get, you know, people to follow me or am I doing it a little bit more strategically? Um, and I think that's something that can help you blog more efficiently as a developer instead of just writing a sea of content. You know, you can do it in a more intentional way. Yeah, that's fantastic. I love the intentionality behind that. So, you know, shifting a little bit here, these days you are on your own, I believe, and you founded this company, Affiliate. Uh, tell us about the founding story and what it's all about. Sure. So, Affiliate began as me scratching my own itch, as they say. So, as a blogger building my travel blog, I was earning money, as I said before, through uh, affiliate marketing. And just like for readers, or not readers, <laughs> for listeners who might not be familiar with this, essentially the way it works is that you you have a website, somebody might click on one of your links where you recommend something, and if they make a purchase, you earn a commission of this. So what I was doing on my travel site is I was talking about hotels that I'd stayed in, tours I've taken, um, or camera gear that I bought, and this worked really well because I was talking about my own experience. But I wanted to get more analytics like a developer. I wanted data to understand what was working on my website, what wasn't. And a lot of tools out there that help you do conversion rate optimization are really oriented more towards e-commerce because there are some quirky things about doing it through affiliates. 
Um, I won't get into that. It's, it's one of those things where technology was made like 20 years ago and it's still running today. And now we all have to live with it. <laughs> this is like the affiliate landscape. Um, and everything looks really, really old. The APIs, there's a lot of XML in there you are still dealing with. It's, it's interesting. So what I did was I wanted to make an app that would do this type of tracking for me and also bring together my commissions from all these different networks because you don't just have one place you log in and you know how much money you made. There's like a dozen different portals and it's hard to get an overview. So yeah, I started building this and my, my whole goal and my motivation behind it was, you know, I wanted to not have a boss by the time I turned 30. This was like, this was like something I put in my mind for a long time. Um, but I started to run out of time. <laughs> I had told myself this like every year for several years and I was like, okay, this is my last shot. So, um, then I started building this app and we got some, some early customers. The only unfortunate thing is that all of our customers are also in the travel sector. So mm. given the current environment, we're all kind of suffering together. Um, and that's definitely made things a bit slower, but yeah, as a whole, it was, was cool because I could kind of solve my own problem. And ultimately, I'm also helping other people find more ways to make money from their online business too. And I can relate to a lot of them. A lot of them are people who came from other careers, became bloggers because they wanted more flexibility. And uh, that was part of their strategy for monetizing their websites. So nothing like scratching your own itch. And by the way, if you want to solve podcast analytics while you're at it, that's another uh, realm that is just a nightmare to work in. So <laughs> I can, means, I can only imagine <laughs> if there's anything I have learned from this, from this experience. And it's one of those things that people say you should do when you build a SaaS product is you shouldn't make something too technically complex. And this one is super technically complex. So I'm like, I, I want to, I'm afraid of analytics in the future. I will have to like recover a bit from this experience of like mass ingestion yeah. of data, denormalization and all this kind of stuff. Um, next time I would start with something easier. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't relate to that. Having worked in the search and NLP space for a long time, I'm sometimes just like, you know, I'm just going to go build something really light and fun. <laughs> Absolutely. So, I'm curious, you know, like kind of what was what growing your personal brand meant to your career wise, perhaps, you know, like what are some of the opportunities that have come from putting yourself out there by blogging, by not just blogging about travel, but blogging about tech, blogging about the experiences you have as a developer? Yeah, there are definitely a lot of, a lot of opportunities that have come from that. Um, I mean, the, the kind of most most apparent one is that when I started to blog a bit more about tech, my experience as a hiring manager and growing in my career from junior to senior, I received like a lot of personal emails from people who related to what I was writing. And this also included a number of different uh, job opportunities. At that point, though, I had already decided that I didn't want to, you know, take another tech job, especially, you know, working in fintech for five years, I was ready to try something on my own. However, it was pretty wild to see how directly what I wrote about translated into the kind of offers and opportunities that people were coming to me with. And one thing that I would say I really learned is that the world of tech and startups and building online businesses is smaller than you think. So for example, I wrote an article which did really well on Hacker News. Uh, I didn't post it there, but it became extremely popular and lived on the number one spot for something like 36 hours. So it was really, uh, wow. it crashed my static server actually. I had to like put up emergency Cloudflare instance. And what happened was that I had people reaching out to me about job opportunities, but when I told them what I was doing instead, actually they were able to help connect me with relevant people in a totally different space. So even though I wasn't, you know, planning to stay necessarily in the tech space and my product is more oriented towards people who are doing marketing, online marketing, they still had those kind of connections because a lot of people get started in tech and anyone who's running their own business, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of interconnection. 
even if the industries are a bit different. So it was interesting to me to see actually how much of the tech and startup space is connected with other industries and other people building businesses that are not necessarily inherently about tech. Hmm. Yeah, I love that. I mean, it's so interesting how these things all get woven together in the end. Looking back a little bit here, what's been one of the most challenging aspects of all of these things that you've been doing? You know, I mean, I think so often, you know, that image of blogger on the beach uh, sits with us. But, you know, as, as you alluded to, there's a lot going on behind the scenes. What's been some of the more challenging aspects? So I think one of the, the harder things that maybe people don't necessarily realize is they're seeing the culmination of the work. For example, when I wrote this blog, it was, you know, four years of writing. And I have over, I think, 120 articles that are, you know, more than 2000 words each that have all gone into reaching, you know, this massive point of, you know, having some kind of monthly revenue. But all along the way, you don't necessarily know that that's going to pan out. And what people kind of maybe miss is that, you know, I spent so many weekends writing these articles or the fact that, you know, it took four years to reach this kind of milestone. And there are very few things I think that people spend four years doing without necessarily seeing the same kind of results. You know, these days, a lot of people don't even stay at the same job for four years. Um, and I think it's it's something where you have to be really persistent, even if you don't necessarily see the outcome right away. You just kind of have to have to trust that if you keep doing it, you know, there will be this kind of compound effect. And over and over, the more that you invest, you know, the more it can grow. And I really saw this, for example, with this website, you know, I was able to grow the site from 30 to over 100,000 monthly views in a single year. But this doesn't just happen, you know, by time passing. It happens by doing a lot of writing and creating things and spending every weekend, you know, working on the website or building my startup. So there's just a whole lot of work that is not really, really visible, but it's, it's also really easy to celebrate once it works at the end. You just don't necessarily know what's going to pan out. Yeah, I can so very much relate. I mean, I, I know when I start launched this podcast, I said to myself, it's going to take at least a year to even get even basic traction. And sure enough, that's, that's held true. So can very much relate. Monica, kind of bringing this to the close here, let you get on with your day. I know you've got a lot of things going on today. But putting your mentoring hat on for a moment, what's your best career advice? What would you perhaps wish 18-year-old Monica knew? I think my best, my best career advice, and especially this is advice I give to fellow women in tech, which is to make sure that when you're looking for a job, you also get a chance to interview who your future boss will be. So one of the key things that I have learned again and again is that in a lot of companies, whether you have the chance to, you know, stay in your, your role, you have a chance to, you know, move kind of to the next level, take on new responsibilities, or if they're going to hire someone above you, a lot of that can come down to having a boss or a manager who is willing to mentor you and also advocate for you. And I have talked to friends time and time again who, you know, accept jobs and they maybe didn't even know who would be their manager when they accepted the position. And for me, it has made the hugest difference when I worked at, at companies and on projects where the person who was kind of like responsible for me also really believed in me and saw it as their job to empower me to do the right thing and help guide me. And so that ties in, of course, to like my own management philosophy. But I think it's one of those things that people can get really, you know, hung up on whether the tech stack is right. Um, or maybe am I going to make 5k more or less depending on the position? Or do I get a fancy title? But for me, the number one thing, if I were to, you know, take another tech job, it would be a lot about um, not just the company, the mission and things like that, but really who is going to be my manager and how do they work? I think that's something that a lot of people miss out on. And the earlier you are in the, the career that you have, the bigger impact that that person can probably make for you. 
Yeah, it's so true. I love that. What's perhaps one quick tip for identifying whether your boss is actually going to meet that criteria or not? I guess the first question is, are they even involved in the interview process? I mean, you want to see that there is somebody who actually, you know, really cares about who's going to be on their team. But I would probably just ask the person directly, you know, what's the what's the path for me look like if I stay at this company for two, three, four years? Because a lot of the times, you know, we are we're rewarded as developers for job hopping because, you know, that's the easiest way to bump our salaries. But I think yep. the question is, does this company actually have a plan and a way where they would reward me for staying on this project long enough to see to actually see the impact? Um, and I, I would really want to know, like, can you give me maybe an example of somebody who's been here for a while? Where did they start and where are they now? And how did you contribute to that? Oh, that's such a fantastic question. I love that. I got to put that in my repertoire as well. Monica, it's so great to have you on the show here. Final question. You, you've got so many great ways of connecting with you. What are one or two that our listeners can use to learn more about you, sign up for your blogging class, figure out how to travel better thanks to you, or otherwise connect with you? Absolutely. So the easiest way to casually get in touch with me is on Twitter. So it's twitter.com slash Monica Lent. And my website is monicalent.com and I have all of my different projects listed there. So if you're interested in uh, the newsletter with the email course, or you want to get uh, travel tips for going around Europe, those are, that's exactly where you're going to find it is on my personal website. That's fantastic, Monica. Thank you so much for joining me today and sharing all those great tips on both how to build and how to build an independent career in tech. I really love uh, all the ideas in there. So thank you again for joining me. Thanks so much for having me, Grant. It was a ton of fun to talk to you. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the Developmentor podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Even better, please leave us a review. If you want to hear older episodes, leave feedback, or sign up to be a guest, please visit us at developmentor.com. If you'd like to support the show, there are three ways you can help out. One, make a donation via Patreon. Two, if you're a software engineer looking for your next gig and wanting to practice interviewing, use our referral link to the interviewing.io platform. And three, buy your next tech book from Manning Publications using our affiliate link. All of those links can be found at developmentor.com support dash us. That's S-U-P-P-O-R-T dash U-S. All one word. Most importantly, if you like this show, please tell your friends. Referrals are the lifeblood of any podcast. Finally, we here at Developmentor hope that each and every episode helps you move one